Thank you, Gary. Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Talk for Two. Our guest today is out of this world awesome. I say out of this world because some of Robert Picardo's most well-known roles are in the biggest sci-fi franchises of all time. He was the cowboy in Inner Space, Richard Woolsey in Stargate, and of course, his most beloved role as the doctor, or emergency medical hologram, on Star Trek Voyager. Of course, Picardo has had other memorable roles on shows including The Wonder Years, his turn as Coach Cutlip earned him an Emmy nod, and The Mentalist. He's also appeared on there several times. But it is in sci-fi where, Picardo says, he has felt the most engaged with fans, a theme among our sci-fi guests. A career among the pretend stars has also led to a real interest in planetary science. He has been a board member of the Planetary Society since 2015. The NGO was founded by famed astronomer and cosmologist, the late Carl Sagan, in 1980. To learn more, go to planetary.org. Here now to tell us how he landed in sci-fi, get it, landed like a spaceship, our interview with Robert Picardo. Robert Picardo, welcome to Talk for Two. You can add this show to the long list of projects you've done. Man, is there anything in your career, sir, that you have not done? What an iconic career you you continue to have. Oh, that's very kind, Matt. Uh, is there anything I've not done? I haven't <laughs> done... Uh, I really haven't done much Shakespeare, so I'd like to get to that but sometime between now and, and the wrong side of the grass. But yeah. uh, thank you. I feel I've, I've, I've been able to do uh, a lot of theater throughout my life, a number of musicals, as well as, I don't know, I guess over 300 hours of television, although I never really counted, and <laughs> a number of movies. And so, yeah, and I also uh, make dinner almost every night. So, yeah, I'm kind of, it's, life has been good. Does that keep you <laughs> grounded making dinner? keep you grounded well, i love to i love to cook i don't know if it keeps me grounded it keeps you well well fed you know <laughs> when you enjoy your own cooking yeah very much i had one of those wonderful italian mothers who uh you know you just uh she instilled in me a love of cooking uh i was the youngest of four children and my father sadly and suddenly passed away when i was quite young and you know, what, how do you hang out with your mom when you're nine or 10 years old? You, you, I, I, uh, I worked in the kitchen with her when she made, uh, when she made dinner, not all the time, but especially on weekend meals, homemade pasta, all sorts of things I learned from her. So yeah, so that's the part of my career you didn't know about. And we got that out of the way. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's get to the career we do know about, but I want to go back to even before that, how were you bit by the acting bug? Uh, you know, I didn't really give it uh, much thought at all, uh, certainly not professionally, but I, I, I you know, I've, I've been in a couple of school plays. I remember in kindergarten, I think, when I played uh, Kanga, I played the uh, Kanga, the mother of Rue, the, the little baby, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, kangaroo, I guess. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought they had a name, a, a Joey, right. So anyway, uh, you would not have been impressed with my kindergarten performance uh, as a as a concerned uh, mother kangaroo. Uh, in ninth grade, um, a fellow named Bill Barker, who was kind of the class clown, pushed me into being in a play with him because he needed it was a two character play and he needed someone to play sort of the you know the the straight role so he could be the the funny guy. 
And I liked it. I got a lot of laughs of my own. So I sort of credit him with getting me started. And by senior year in high school, I did a number of roles. I wasn't a, a terrific athlete. So it was a sort of a way of, you know, being part of the after school community doing alternative service when you're not, you know, I wasn't a, a good uh, soccer player or baseball player and certainly not a football player. So um, I started in high school. When I went off to college, I continued to act for fun. But I got into production at Yale where I was a, a pre-med student. I was a you know, biology major. Mm. And I got in a, a production sophomore year that kind of was semi-professional. And that's what really got me started. I, I was in the Bernstein Mass, and Leonard Bernstein came to see our production and was so taken with it that he, he, he arranged for our production to premiere the work. This is a student production. Oh, wow. It had opened the Kennedy's. It had opened the Kennedy Center only a year and a half before in a professional production. And our student production opened, the, you know, premiered his work in Vienna, Austria, when I was a sophomore in college. And, and, and I was very well received. I had a significant role in it. And Mr. Bernstein, you know, was really encouraging me. He said, what are you going to do with your life? And I told him I was going to be a doctor. And he was surprised. He said, you have such natural energy on stage. I think you'd want to be a doctor. And I said, would you, would you tell my mother that? <laughs> so, so I made uh, opening night, Mr. Bernstein told my mother that he thought I should be an actor. And that's what started the wheels going around and, and kind of sprung me out of pre-med. And the irony of course, is I played television doctors for 11 years in prime time. Yeah. Even well, though I, I never made it uh, through, you know, never made it to medical school. <laughs> well, that was the other thing I was going to ask. I have a friend who's also a big fan of your work, uh, both in Stargate and Star Trek. And there's a meticulous thing to both those characters, very meticulous, very rule driven, very by the book. And he wondered if that was something within you or if that was just very good acting. You have a tendency to play those kind of doctory, very meticulous characters. Where does that come from? That's a good question. I would probably, uh, I mean, if I, if you ask me the kind of roles that I think were my stock in trade, in other words, what I did particularly well or what people looked for mm -hmm. in me, it would be to play a character that you initially didn't like. And that you grew to like, in spite mm -hmm. of his initial bad impression, that he came across either as a jerk. In China Beach, my doctor character was basically a sexist, an old school, you know, 1950s era, I'm, I am a, I'm the hands of God type of a doctor. I mean, he was, it was actually, the show was set in 1968, but his whole ethos was, you know, the doctor as, uh, you know, uh, the, as the savior of the world, huge ego. Um, and, uh, and on, obviously on Star Trek, my character was very ego driven, which is ironic because he was a technological character. But my, I guess my point is that I tend to play characters that seem to be a little neurotic on the surface. So they seem to, they kind of put you off at mm -hmm. first and then you get, and then, but they start to reveal themselves in a way, perhaps even unintentionally that you see what makes what makes them be the way they are and you start to have sympathy for them. That even applies to my character on Atlantis, who was a very unlikable character when you first met him because he was, frankly, never designed to be a leader. He was supposed to be a kind of a, a, a one-off villain. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, but I understand meticulousness. I, I think I tend to play very verbal characters and intelligent characters by and large. The great exception of that being the gym teacher on the Wonder Years, <laughs> who had the IQ, who had the IQ of a you know of a I guess uh, uh, an, in, an inanimate object. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know how else to put it. Um, but uh, but I, I mean I'll, I'll accept meticulous as well as being a quality. I, I like playing. I like playing characters that you have to struggle. The audience is caught off guard by the way they act, and they but they they don't reject them or they don't go, oh, that guy's a jerk. I don't like him. They want to see what makes him the way he is, and that and and uh, that that is that's fun to do to be able to sort of slowly you know, reveal to an audience or at least to show them what's behind your that that perhaps slightly neurotic veneer. So, um, uh, do, and do I find that from a personal character? Oh, I don't. I can't really tell you. I don't know that I have a slightly neurotic veneer, but I, I do like. I fashion myself as a fairly smart guy, and uh, and I love, you know, I love to play very verbal characters. I like to play characters more intelligent than I am, and that 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 uh, that 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 use language very very well. Exactly. I, I love that answer. That's a great answer. That's a very detailed and intelligent answer befitting somebody who plays intelligent characters. We can't talk about your career without talking about the sci-fi aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I talked to Tori uh, about two months ago, had Tori on the show from Star- from Stargate, and mm-hmm. had Rob, and neither of them really intended to get into sci-fi. Was it your intention to get into sci-fi, or and if not, how did your career lead you to these wonderful roles in the genre? Um, I, I I would agree with them. I, I, I uh, particularly Tori, who I know quite well, I adore. I would agree that I um that I didn't set out uh, to uh, to be in sci-fi, nor was I a huge fan of science fiction. Growing up, I. As a young man, I loved genre films. I particularly liked horror movies, the classic universal horror films. Um, but I don't think I really necessarily saw myself in science fiction. And I remember, I think I auditioned for Babylon 5. Mm. I think I did. Because uh, I had another sci-fi audition a couple of years before Star Trek, and I thought, oh, this really isn't for me. Now, the way I happened to get into Voyager... Um, it was, uh, it was early one summer, I guess, 1994. I was finally working at a very prestigious Los Angeles theater called the Mark Caper Forum that I'd always wanted to work at. I finally got a role there and I was in the final days of rehearsal. In fact, I think we were in what we call tech week where the days are long and you're setting all the technical cues and you work a 12 hour day. My agent sent me the Star Trek Voyager script to audition for. I said, I can't audition for this i'm you know i i have 12 hour rehearsal days and he's and besides i'm working you know you're not supposed to tell people you're available when you're not Mm -hmm. uh and he said don't you have a long lunch break i said yeah i have two hours he said well just go to the audition don't tell them you're working (laughs) your agent your agent a good holly a good hollywood agent will say yes lie don't forget to lie um so i went to the i went to the audition but I didn't even accept the, they wanted to see me for the doctor role. And I, 
the night before I was supposed to go in, I said to an actress friend of mine who I'd known from China Beach, who was reading for Janeway, uh, a woman named Megan Gallagher. She said, oh, I've done a couple of guest stars on Deep Space Nine. I love the new Star Trek. They're great. She was referring to, you know, because I, I didn't really know much about the reboot. I hadn't seen The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. And I said, well, I did this doctor character. You know, he's, he's a machine. He's like a hologram, I guess. And I don't know how a hologram handles instruments. And it just sounds kind of boring to me. He's colorless and humorless like a machine. And she said, well, why don't, I read the script. Why don't you look at Neelix? Because that's a very funny part. So I looked at it. I loved the part of Neelix. I asked to read for Neelix. I went in and I came so close, so close to being cast. It, it was between me and Ethan Phillips who's an old friend of mine, by the way, but I didn't know he was my competition, and a third actor, a British actor, um, who had been in Top Sea Turvy about Gilbert and Sullivan. We all tested around the same time. And I came a hairbreadth from getting that role and therefore condemning myself to five and a half thousand hours in a makeup chair. Because they don't <laughs> tell you how long the makeup is. They yeah. kind of, they don't want to scare the actors away. They They say more than 15 minutes. Well, you know, three and a half hours a day, is more than 15 minutes. It's also more than, it's also more than three hours. Yeah. Um, but they don't tell you that. So I, 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 uh, I didn't get the Neelix spot. Thank God. Thank God. And then the, the producers really impressed me by calling my agent and saying, you know, there's something about him and his voice. We would love to see him read for the initial part. And by that time, I'd read the script. And I, you know, and I was, as I said, impressed that they didn't just discard me the way they do any actor. Once you've had a, a network test, you're over. If you don't get it, they don't look back. But the fact that they said, and I said to my agent, I don't get the joke of this character. I don't get it, but I'll go in and try. Now, uh, it's ironic because I, I didn't really get the joke. I knew he was supposed to be a willful piece of technology. I knew they wanted him to be funny, but I didn't really find it funny. Now, something that really helps me, I think, in the role is that I have what my two daughters would call resting bitch face. When my face is at when my face is at rest, I look unhappy or even slightly mean. Just if I'm not smiling, I can look a little, you know, a, a little off putting. It's it's having big dark eyes and just the way, you know, just the way my expression is naturally, I look unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped that helped me, you know. Um but I also went in and did a Without being aware of ripping off the Forrest Kelly, I did a, you know, I did an ad lib joke at the end, which entirely got me the role. Entirely. Do you remember the and joke? That was, oh yeah, absolutely. After the last scripted line in the pilot, the the actor, the character only has about nine lines mm-hmm. in the pilot, and the last scripted line in one scene, they've left his program running in sick bay, and he has nothing to do at the moment. So he, he's in an empty empty sick bay, and he says, I believe someone has failed to terminate my program. That's supposed to be the outline of the scene. This goes a cut on that. But it, after I said the last line, I believe someone has failed to terminate my program, I took a long deadpan look at all 14 people watching the audition, and I said, I'm a doctor, not a nightlight, <laughs> and got a huge laugh. And then I was hired that afternoon. Oh, so, that's great. You know, it's, a, it's a little risky. You don't really, you never have lived in Star Trek, ever. I didn't know that, but yeah, Star Trek is very, you know, you really don't. If you, I, I learned to, to work the system by, you know, if you want to be, <laughs> if you want to be spontaneous in Star Trek when you're shooting, 
you have to be spontaneous five days in advance, which means you have to read the scene when the script comes out. If you have a joke suggestion, you submit it, just like, you know, up the chain of command. You call the writer in question or email them. Back then, we didn't even, yeah, what am I talking about email? I don't even think I used email then. So I basically just would call and say, hey, what if after this line, I said this? And they, they wrote it down, and then if they liked it, it, it showed up in the rewrite pages. But you, the important thing is you did not waste time by stopping production because nobody had the freedom to change the script. No one did. Not the directors, not the actors. It was all a, it was all mm. a decision of the, right, of the, producing, the writer producers. So if you wanted to change one thing, you had to stop the show, call them. And sometimes we did that because something was wrong. You know, once in a while, uh, you know, because of even my background as a biology major, if they, if they made a mistake in something that was science-based and I knew it was a mistake, I would call. And because our tech advisor was an astrophysicist, not, not a life science guy. So, you know, he was very good at checking up on things, but some, some things got by him. So I would catch them occasionally in an error in biology, you know, calling blood referring to blood cells rather than blood as a tissue because, you know, technically blood is a tissue. So the nanoprobes, uh, you know, the first tissue to be attacked by the nanoprobes is the patient's blood, not the first cells to be attacked is the patient's blood. So little things like that I would call and they'd say, well, that sounds weird. And then they would, then the whole production would stop for 12 minutes and then they'd call <laughs> back and say, okay, you're right. You know, and, and but nobody likes, a crew of 74 people or whatever it is sitting around for 10 full minutes. If you lose 10 minutes of production time, you're wasting thousands of dollars to, to satisfy an actor's ego. So yeah. I, I learned that the, that really the show was run very efficiently and the way to make a suggestion or change a line was to just do it in advance. And once you learned that, then you could, then you could make suggestions and, and come up with funny lines and stuff like that. What was it different in Stargate? What was that procedure? What was the was the set looser, or was it just as tight yeah, on Atlantis? No, you know, it was it was it was night and day different. Really? Um, yeah. First of all, Atlantis. You know, uh, Atlantis. I mean, the star the Stargate shows are science fiction shows that are set in the present. First of all, Star Trek being set in this set in this mythic you know future. 300 years or whatever in the future they they're very careful not to have any of the actors use a colloquial phrase or or in any way damage the feeling that we're that we're in the future they don't they don't like colloquialisms they don't like a regional speech regional american speech anyway it's okay to be british in star trek but they don't want you to be they don't want you to be from you know from south carolina or something like that they're just touchy about certain things, thinking that in the future, maybe everybody speaks standard American, for example, or certainly nobody would use a phrase like, you know, far out in the <laughs> 24th century. Yeah. So, um, so there's a certain, I understand to a certain extent why they're so protective of their language choices. Now, Stargate being set in a secret program in the present they were, they use colloquial, you know, everyday language all the time and colloquial references. But it's also just, it's kind of baked in to the, to the humorous tone 
mm-hmm. of the show that I really think came from Richard Dean Anderson. I mean, I'm sure it came from Brad Wright and Robert Cooper and all that, but but really Richard Dean Anderson had that wonderful quality of sort of winking at the camera going, you know, we're going to save the world in 43 minutes and we know we're going to do it. So it, it there was always kind of a feeling of, you know, of, 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 of him letting the audience in on the joke, so to speak, that Star Trek didn't do. They flirted with that in some humorous episodes, but they basically didn't do that. And, and because of that, um, it, it had a more loosey-goosey, seat-of-the-pants. You were, you were allowed in dangerous situations. You could still crack jokes. That, and producers were great to me. I mean, they, they gave you the freedom. Once you had the scene the way they wrote it, if you went up to the director and said, "Hey, can we do it again? I'd like to, you know, I'd like to try a different line, or I'd like that, you know," and they would like, "Yeah." Or I often just did an ad lib right at the end of the scene without even asking. Once I knew they had the cut point, they had the scene as it was. I'd say something at the end if I thought it was funny and appropriate. So Stargate was very, you know, it was a much looser show uh, to shoot, um, and. As much as I loved my years on Star Trek, there was always the feeling in the back of your mind that, oh, you know, we gotta, we gotta mind the clock, we gotta get it done, we gotta, you know, we gotta do exactly as written. We don't want to mess around with the upstairs that we might get a, a, you know, we might have a talking to. Whereas I never, you never had that anxiety on Stargate. It was always like, you know, and that may just be the way they treated me. They were very gracious to me because they knew you know i was the elder statesman coming in i was the oldest actor in the cast and and uh you know they uh they they just made me feel like um you know that they were very glad to have me mm-hmm. and that they liked my instincts as an actor so so the uh i i literally had the writers say on the set hey thanks for that ad lib or i really love that line because ultimately the writers get credit for the success of the show. You know what I mean? The writers, the, the, the audience assumes that the writers wrote every line in the show. So if you add a great joke and the writers really like it and they're happy with it, you know, it's, it's ultimately to their credit. And that's the, that's the collaborative and fun thing. You know, it's like what reminds me of why I love working with Joe Dante, because, you know, he's such, he's such a classic example of a director who's so relaxed and, and confident in his own taste and his own strengths as a director that he never reacts badly if an actor makes a suggestion. It's, oh, he listens to everybody. And then he'll do it or not do it. But the point is there's never any feeling of ego there, like you're overstepping your, jo- your, you know, your job description because yeah. he's just so – he runs such a relaxed set. And – you know, and and I and I had that feeling when I was doing Stargate that it was you know that if you had it uh, you know you, you were free you were free to su- suggest anything and sometimes on Star Trek simply because of the long hours and the brutal schedule you felt like oh I better not <laughs> yeah now's not a good time to speak up because we're two and a half hours behind yeah <laughs> that yeah. makes sense yeah it does <laughs> and you talk about change on Stargate and then being open to it. Woolsey, and you alluded to this earlier, but you can feel it not necessarily in your performance, but in your in your in the writing of it. 
he was not meant to be become the patriotic character that he became. He he has this going from this suit to this suit that defends the patriotism of the program to being the guy that runs the whole thing in Atlantis in the last year of the show. What was the conversation about his journey and the decision to take him from, like you say, a one-off villain to somebody who really becomes the caretaker for the whole mission of the program? You know, I, although I think that the whole production team, starting with uh, um, Brad Wright, Robert Cooper, I think they all um, grew to like me as an actor uh, uh, quite a bit. But my real champions were Joe Malazzi and Paul Muley. They mm-hmm. wrote they wrote the script that introduced the Woolsey character, and Woolsey was brought in simply as filler material. They had written this amazing episode called Heroes with Saul Rubinek mm-hmm. playing a, a documentary film director, and while he sort of recording the kind of dog and pony show at the at the uh, air force um location you know they're hiding the stargate program from him but then this terrible tragedy happens off world and their doctor dies and it's it's so he senses that something terrible's happened but he doesn't he's kind of not allowed to know what it is and anyway they they made this great show that was 10 minutes too long so apparently they went to the sci-fi channel and said, hey, why don't we, instead of taking 10 minutes out of this great episode, why don't we make it a two-parter and we'll make the second part like a clip, our clip show where we take the best scenes and then we weave them into a new narrative. Because that was one thing that they did, I think, regularly. Yeah. To have one episode that was less money, they would do a, what's called a clip show where they would rerun the, the best, most expensive effect scenes and all that. Yeah. From the prior season. Okay, so I was brought in as a character to investigate how this tragedy had happened, and I was supposed to be just a complete kind of hatchet man. Uh, you know, who, who, somebody's head's going to roll for this. Who is it going to be? And I trust no one. And I believe, you know, I believe no one. I, I interview everybody. So I had 12 pages to shoot in one day because I had a commitment. Right after that. So they literally had me for one day. So I went up. It was a very brutal day, but I was extremely well prepared. I got all of this dialogue out, and I knew nothing about their show really specifically before this. So I had to bone up on it. And uh, and I did uh, – some of the scenes were complicated. I remember there was an interview scene where everybody was in my interview chair, and it was one shot. So it went around and around in a circle without cuts. And the different actors had to sneak in and out of the chair while they were off camera, which was hard enough for them to do, but very hard for me because I, I never take my eyes off of a chair, but all of these people are jumping in and out of this chair as the camera circles us. It was super complicated. So it all went well. And the producers, Joe and Paul, asked me to go out to dinner. We had a great time at dinner, joked a lot. They told me they'd been a fan of my work from Star Trek. And I guess we just hit it off so well that, that I think they even joked at that dinner saying, you know, I'm, we're sorry we made your character such a jerk because, you know, we would have loved to have had you back. I think they said something like that. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, when they did call me back, every time they had that character back, he had a glimmer, a glimmer of a positive characteristic, having been introduced as a complete douchebag, just a <laughs> jerk. Yeah. So, you know, so the first time I'm a complete douchebag, but then the second time 
I'm a complete douchebag who really believes in civilian oversight of a secret government organization. So I'm a, I'm a douchebag <laughs> who really believes in something that's positive, right? Yeah. I just go about getting it in a douchey way. And then the next time I'm back, I'm a douchebag who really believes in secret government oversight who doesn't really want to be a douchebag anymore. Yeah. And then the next time I was like, I, I not only didn't want to be a douchebag anymore, I felt bad that I was compelled to be a douchebag or that nobody liked me. I mean, I had this little glimmer of self-awareness that was totally, totally not apparent in the original character that he had any care at all, whether people liked him at all was, was not apparent, but he slowly developed these positive characteristics. And then he started to even have funny, you know, they would, I even had, they had fun with the fact that I was kind of a coward, that I was such a, you know, kind of an armchair quarterback that if you put me in danger, I was freaked out. Like when I was in the swarm, the crossover episode, Yeah. Uh, the first time I was on the Atlantis set, or actually it was an off-world mission, but the first time I was on the Atlantis show that they spun me over, Woolsey is running away from danger faster than anybody else. So, yeah. so when they finally called me, Joe called me right around Thanksgiving time um, in, I don't know, maybe 2007 or something like that, and said, how would you like to be the new commander of the Atlantis expedition? I said, wait a minute, Joe. I said, I, nobody likes me. I'm a douchebag. <laughs> I have no leadership skills. All I do is critique other people's leadership. I'm a demonstrable coward, right? And no one has any respect for me. Yeah. And he said, don't worry about that. That's our problem. I said, great, let's do it. So, <laughs> I love that. Oh, but I, I did have Bill, you know, I had all those reactions at first. And he said, that's our problem, and that's what was so great, great about that writing staff because they very deftly, they very deftly, um, without making him suddenly into a different person, they had all these things to to make him earn the audience's sympathy, so the so the audience was rooting for him. Yeah, like you know, ha when when he was Taylor handed him her baby and he didn't know what to do with the baby. <laughs> yep, and. And and saying that in the divorce, his wife got the dog and all these little touches that that made him where you realized he was kind of a lonely guy and really a, not only a lonely man, but a really a loner. Right. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly he was part of a community and not only part of it, he was leading. So I think that the way they the way Wilsey kind of earned his, uh, you know, earned his stripes. um that that one season that I was a regular was very was very smart writing and uh, and I credit them with the fact that the audience even not only kind of rooted for me but they they still bought me yeah <laughs> they still bought me as the as the same character which is kind of extraordinary if you think back to you know how he was introduced several years before. Sure. I, you know, we're going to go over time, but I have three more things for you real sure. quick here. All right. Um, I want to talk about the planetary society. How did you become involved in oh. them and uh, with them? And is that a product of your involvement in science fiction? Yes, uh, it is. Yes. To your, uh, to your um, second question. I'll do it very quickly. The planetary society, which was, uh, we're celebrating our 40th year. Yeah, was co-founded by Carl Sagan and uh, co colleagues from K 
Caltech, Lewis Friedman, and uh, and Bruce Murray in 1980 because Sagan felt that the public's interest and engagement with space was waning after the incredible, you know, moonshot of the 60s. Yeah. And he wanted to, you know, captivate the public and, and give them a, a way of feeling that they had a voice in space exploration, that it mattered what they what their priorities were. They could kind of influence, you know, their uh, their congresspeople and say, hey, this program is important to me and I think we should do it. And, you know, they could exercise some influence. So um, and when I was on while I was in Star Trek in, the, uh, you know, in our initial run maybe the something like the third season of Voyage or something around there, like 97 or 8, uh, I was asked to do a fundraiser, to take part in a fundraiser. It was Ray Bradbury's uh, 70th birthday, um, I believe 70th, 65th, 70th. And, uh, and I would get to meet Ray Bradbury, who was an icon. And they had actors like Charlton Heston, John Reese davies uh, John Delancey, who I barely knew at the time, who had already played Q and hadn't appeared very much on our show, or if at all, uh, and Tim Russ, my colleague. And uh, uh, several of us all read incredible passages from the Martian Chronicles and other works of Bradbury at the Pasadena Playhouse, and it was a fundraiser. And after that experience, I got a call at home from the two surviving, you know, Mr. Sagan, of course, had passed away before I was ever on, on Voyager, sadly. Um, but the, the two surviving co-founders called me and said, we'd like you to be on the advisory council. And I said, well, I'm really not a scientist. And they said, yeah, but we, you know, they, they found that, uh, I don't know how exactly they put it. I guess I had told them that I had been a biology major so that I was a science lover and I had, you know, and I, I cared about it. And, and I just found their, what I knew of their organization, I found really interesting. So I said, yes, they really wanted me to bring their message to the science fiction community, which is what my mission within their mission has been. But on a parallel track, here's what's happening at the same time. Star Trek is putting me in the company of extraordinary people who have been influenced by Star Trek over the years and gone on to do amazing things in science and technology. Wow. As an example, at the, at the Star Trek, um, at the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, which was while Voyager was in its initial run, it was 1998, of course, and September of 98, we had a big event in um, space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. And I was one of, I don't remember how many of the, my Voyager castmates were there along with other, you know, but uh, uh, my recollection is Leonard Nimoy was there. And, and, and it was the first time I met DeForest Kelly and was on stage with him. And then on another occasion at that same event, I was on stage with five astronauts who had walked on the moon. Mm -hmm. wow. um, you know, Al Alan Shepard, Alan Bean, uh, Buzz Aldrin. Oh, my um, gosh. Uh, 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 Dick, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. Uh, uh, I, I can't believe I, I, I could normally can rattle off all five names. I apologize. That's okay. Um, um, uh, in any case, this event uh, made me feel two different things. At, at first, I thought, oh, how awkward. I'm only an actor, and I'm here with these five icons. 
of space exploration. And I thought, you know, you can either feel awkward about this and out of place, or you could embrace it and go, what an amazing opportunity to meet these people and talk to them and capture, capture some of their, what's the word? Just, just some of their excitement and enthusiasm about, about space, a subject that I hadn't thought a great deal about before I was on Star Trek. And that's what happened. I just, to, to be around people who looked at science fiction. Now, I, I'm sure the, these, the, that generation of astronauts, I, I, I don't believe, well, obviously they couldn't have been influenced by Star Trek. That's very unlikely, that generation of them. However, they could have been introduced by Isaac, uh, they could have been influenced by Isaac Asimov or other classic science fiction. But in the intervening years, I have met so many people um, who work for NASA, uh, particularly at JPL, because I lived near it for so long, that, that, uh, that, that were inspired, uh, grew up watching Star Trek and went, oh, you know, this is, this is exciting to me. I want to, I want to try to bring us closer to that vision. I am, I want to extend our presence in space and make new discoveries. And, and that's, what's been so cool about being part of the franchise. I have met people who, who lump me in with the inspirational value of Star Trek that they experienced as young people and grew up, um, and then grew up to become either astronauts or engineers or, you know, uh, principal investigators in, in big missions at NASA, et cetera. So that, that is why science working in Star Trek has brought me back to science and my original passion, which is life science. Now it, now that we're getting closer and closer to discovering at least evidence of microbial life, if not on Mars, then hopefully on a, on a, a moon of, of, uh, of Jupiter or Saturn. I think it's going to happen, and I'm hoping it's going to happen during my lifetime. And if it, if it does, and when it does, as our CEO Bill Nye is fond of saying, it will change. It will profoundly change the way each and every one of us look at ourselves, discovering just even microbial life offline. We're, we're suddenly not going to be the center of the cosmos. That, yeah. that mankind has always kind of thought of itself as. Not, and yeah. and that's, going, that's, that's going to be an exciting moment. I so, um, so, I'm sorry. please. Oh, but anyway, the Planetary Society, I'm now on the executive board. I did many videos for them called uh, the Planetary Post, where I would talk to uh, uh, different people working in various aspects of space exploration, it's really helped me to become a science presenter, which is basically someone who can, can for the sake of a, of a layperson audience, I can ask the same questions they would and interview someone who knows far more about the topic than I ever could, but I can still, I can still ask the questions that a general audience member would want to hear the answers to. And that's been a wonderful experience, and I've met so many really extraordinary people. So I'm a big fan of it, and I encourage your audience to visit our, our newly uh, refurbished website, and you can see all of our videos, see the videos I've done there, read our bloggers. We, we have the best bloggers about space. They're constantly quoted in major newspapers like the Washington Post, so we have the most knowledgeable people writing about space who work 
for our nonprofit, the Planetary Society. So I highly recommend, and our leader, Bill Nye, is just a, a, you know, a great voice for engaging the public and, and getting them interested in science in general and certainly exploration. I love that. Speaking of Star Trek, real quick, and of course, everybody, you should go check out the Planetary, Planetary Society. It's just wonderful. I was on the website all day. And so I had to ask about that. Getting back to Star Trek, real quick, just to break some news. I know in 2019 you mentioned you were asked, but are you, along with Whoopi Goldberg, maybe going to be involved in season two of Picard? <laughs> um, there are no uh, there are no present plans. Um, so I uh, the answer is no. Um, but. But you know, you ne- never say never in Star Trek. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I loved uh, my experience working on it. And like Brent Spiner, I, I played uh, two different characters. I played, you know, my main character as his was Data, and I also played the engineer who created my character, who of course would have aged in real time. So I would say, anything is possible, but uh, nothing is definite. I love that. Last question for you, and then stay on because I want to talk to you real quick. We'll wrap up after we're off mic here. But my last question for you is, you have had such an amazing career. You've done literally everything. This kind of brings back to what I opened with. Not that your career is over by any means, but a body of work is still a body of work. And when you look back at it, what do you think about how many things you've gotten to do as an actor and as a personality because of all of this. What do you make of this incredible success across so many genres for yourself? Well, first of all, thank you. That's you. Uh, I don't, <laughs> from the inside, I don't look at it that way. I feel, right. I feel blessed that I've gotten to spend my life doing exactly what I love doing. That's, that's, that's what I feel mostly. I feel gratitude for entering a difficult profession and to have made my life, uh, my career and my living exclusively from that basically since I was in my early twenties. I mean, I was on Broadway by 22, wow. 23, forgive me, uh, in my first major role. So I've been very fortunate and, and I'm very aware of that. And I, uh, it, what was wonderful to bring it back to, Star Trek, it is, it's great for an actor to have a, quote, signature role, so to speak, so that, so that uh, you know, even if people, if you're, if, you're, if you're in some corner of the world where people have never seen Star Trek, at least they've heard of it. So when you say you're not, you, you don't have to answer that awful question, would I have seen you in anything, which is what we all suffer <laughs> as young actors, you know, when you run into people. Um, but... Uh, I have, I've had an enormous uh, breadth of things that I've been able to do. Star Trek brought me back to singing. As a, obviously, at, at Yale, at the beginning of our conversation, when I said that I did the math, I thought I'd be singing throughout my career because that was my first big success, was in, was in a very complicated musical work like that. But then for many years, I didn't, I didn't sing at all. But Star Trek got me singing again, and I've done about eight musicals since Star Trek ended as recently as last spring in New York off Broadway. I did enter laughing the musical by the great uh, based on the book by the great Carl Reiner, who we just recently lost. So if you talk about a a career like his, we all pale against a man like that who had a, you know, who had that 
incredibly wonderful a career and lived vibrantly into his middle 90s, still creating new work. Like Norman Lear, like Mel Brooks, like all of these, you know, these amazing people that are in their 90s and still doing it. Norman Lear just turned 98, and I'm happy to say is a is an acquaintance of mine of many years because I'm very close friends with his son-in-law. So oh, wow. it's a, uh, it's really a, you know, I I feel now is sort of getting to elder statesman status. I I really appreciate how lucky I am to have had, um, you know, to have had longevity uh, in an industry that I love, and uh, and and that's that's really a wonderful thing. Thank you, Robert. I cannot wait to see what your next project will be once we are out of this crazy quarantine time where film industry is going, then it shuts down, then it's going, then it shuts down. I can't wait to see what you do next. And of course, everybody, for those interested on the actual astronomy side of things, visit planetary.org. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talk for Two and Instagram at Talk for Two Pod. Reach out to me directly at Talk for Two Cast at gmail.com. That's T A L K F O R T W O C A S T at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. Thank you, Gary. Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Talk for Two. Our guest today is out of this world awesome. I say out of this world because some of Robert Picardo's most well-known roles are in the biggest sci-fi franchises of all time. He was the cowboy in Inner Space, Richard Woolsey in Stargate, and of course, his most beloved role as the Doctor, or Emergency Medical Hologram, on Star Trek Voyager. Of course, Picardo has had other memorable roles on shows including The Wonder Years, his turn as Coach Cutlip earned him an Emmy nod, and The Mentalist. He's also appeared on there several times. But it is in sci-fi where, Picardo says, he has felt the most engaged with fans, a theme among our sci-fi guests. A career among the pretend stars has also led to a real interest in planetary science. He has been a board member of the Planetary Society since 2015. The NGO was founded by famed astronomer and cosmologist, the late Carl Sagan, in 1980. To learn more go to planetary.org. Here now to tell us how he landed in sci-fi, get it, landed like a spaceship, our interview with Robert Picardo. Robert Picardo, welcome to Talk for Two. You can add this show to the long list of projects you've done. Man, is there anything in your career, sir, that you have not done? What an iconic career you've, you continue to have. Oh, that's very kind, Matt. Uh, is there anything I've not done? I haven't <laughs> done, uh, I really haven't done much Shakespeare. So I'd like to get to that, but sometime between now and, and the wrong side of the grass. But yeah. uh, thank you. I feel I've, I've, I've been able to do 
uh, a lot of theater throughout my life, a number of musicals, as well as, I don't know, I guess over 300 hours of television, although I never really counted, and <laughs> a number of movies. And so, yeah, and I also uh, make dinner almost every night. So, yeah, I'm kind of, it's, it, life has been good. Does that keep you grounded, making dinner? Keep you grounded? Well, I love to I love to cook. I don't know if it keeps me grounded. It keeps me well, well fed. <laughs> you know, when you enjoy your own cooking yeah. very much. I had one of those wonderful Italian mothers who... Uh, you know, you just, uh, she instilled in me a love of cooking. Uh, I was the youngest of four children and my father sadly and suddenly passed away when I was quite young. And, you know, what, how do you hang out with your mom when you're nine or 10 years old? You, you, I, I, uh, I worked in the kitchen with her when she made, uh, when she made dinner, not all the time, but especially on weekends homemade pasta, all sorts of things I learned from her. So yeah, so that's the part of my career you didn't know about, and we got that out of the way. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's get to the career we do know about, but I want to go back to even before that. How were you bit by the acting bug? Uh, you know, I didn't really give it uh, much thought at all, uh, certainly not professionally, but I, I, I you know, I've, I've been in a couple of school plays. I remember in kindergarten, I think, when I played uh, Kanga, I played the uh, Kanga, the mother of Rue, the, the little baby. Uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, kangaroo, I guess. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought they had a name, a, a Joey, right? So anyway, uh, you would not have been impressed with my kindergarten performance uh, as a as a concerned uh, mother kangaroo. Uh, in ninth grade, um, a fellow named Bill Barker who was kind of the class clown, pushed me into being in a play with him because he needed, it was a two-character play, and he needed someone to play sort of the, you know, the, the straight role so he could be the, the funny guy. And I liked it. I got a lot of laughs of my own, so I sort of credit him with getting me started. And by senior year in high school, I did a number of roles. I wasn't a, a terrific athlete, so it was a sort of a way of, you know, being part of the after-school community doing alternative service when you're not, you know, I wasn't a, a good uh, soccer player or baseball player and certainly not a football player. So um, I started in high school. When I went off to college, I continued to act for fun. But I got into production at Yale where I was a, a pre-med student. I was, a, you know, a biology major. Mm. And I got in a, a production sophomore year that kind of was semi-professional. And that's what really got me started. I, I was in the Bernstein Mass, and Leonard Bernstein came to see our production and was so taken with it that he, he, he arranged for our production to premiere the work. This is a student production. Oh, wow. It had opened the Kennedy's. It had opened the Kennedy Center only a year and a half before in a professional production. And our student production opened the, you know, premiered his work in Vienna, Austria, when I was a sophomore in college. And and, and I was very well received. I had a significant role in it. And Mr. Bernstein, you know, was really encouraging me. He said, what are you going to do with your life? And I told him I was going to be a doctor. And he was surprised. He said, you have such natural energy on stage. I think you'd want to be a doctor. And I said, would you, would you tell my mother that? <laughs> so so I made, uh, opening night, Mr. Bernstein told my mother that he thought I should be an actor. And that's what started the wheels going around and, and kind of sprung me out of pre-med. And the irony, of course, is I played television doctors for 11 years in primetime. 
Yeah. Even well, though I, I never made it uh, through, you know, made, never made it to medical school. <laughs> well, that was the other thing I was going to ask. I have a friend who's also a big fan of your work, uh, both in Stargate and Star Trek. And there's a meticulous thing to both those characters. Very meticulous, very rule-driven, very by the book. And he wondered if that was something within you or if that was just very good acting. You have a tendency to play those kind of doctory, very meticulous characters. Where does that come from? That's a good question. I would probably, uh, I mean, if I, if you ask me the kind of roles that I think were my stock in trade, in other words, what I did particularly well or what people looked for mm-hmm. in me, it would be to play a character that you initially didn't like. And that you grew to like, in spite mm-hmm. of his initial bad impression, that he came across either as a jerk. In China Beach, my doctor character was basically a sexist, an old school, you know, 1950s era, I'm, I am a, I'm the hands of God type of a doctor. I mean, he was, it was actually, the show was set in 1968, but his whole ethos was, you know, the doctor as, uh, you know, uh, the, as the savior of the world, huge ego. Um, and, uh, and on, obviously on Star Trek, my character was very ego driven, which is ironic because he was a technological character. But my, I guess my point is that I tend to play characters that seem to be a little neurotic on the surface. or so they seem to, they kind of put you off at mm-hmm. first and then you get, and then, but they start to reveal themselves in a way, perhaps even unintentionally that you see what makes what makes them be the way they are and you start to have sympathy for them. That even applies to my character on Atlantis, who was a very unlikable character when you first met him because he was, frankly, never designed to be a leader. He was supposed to be a kind of a, a, a one-off villain. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I understand meticulousness. I, I think I tend to play very verbal characters and intelligent characters by and large the great exception of that being the gym teacher on the wonder years <laughs> who had the iq who had the iq of a you know of a i guess uh, uh an, an inanimate object <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. know how else to put it um but uh but i i mean I'll, I'll accept meticulous as well as being a quality i i like playing i like playing characters that you have to struggle the audience is caught off guard by the way they act, and they but they they don't reject them or they don't go oh that guy's a jerk I don't like him. They want to see what makes him the way he is, and that and and uh, that that is that's fun to do to be able to sort of slowly you know, reveal to an audience or at least to show them what's behind your that that perhaps slightly neurotic veneer. So. Um, uh, do, and do I find that from a personal character? Oh, I don't. I can't really tell you. I don't know that I have a slightly neurotic veneer, but I, I do like. I fashion myself as a fairly smart guy, and uh, and I love, you know, I love to play very verbal characters. I like to play characters more intelligent than I am, and that 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 uh, that that's, that use language very very well. Exactly. I, I love that answer. That's a great answer. That's a very detailed and intelligent answer befitting somebody who plays intelligent characters. We can't talk about your career without talking about the sci-fi aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I talked to Tori uh, about two months ago, had Tori on the show from Star- from Stargate, and mm-hmm. had Rob, and neither of them really intended to get into sci-fi. 
Was it your intention to get into sci-fi, or and if not, how did your career lead you to these wonderful roles in the genre? Um, I, I I would agree with them. I, I, I uh, particularly Tori, who I know quite well, I adore. I would agree that I um that I didn't set out uh, to to be in sci-fi, nor was I a huge fan of science fiction. Growing up, I, as a young man, I loved genre films. I particularly liked horror movies, the classic universal horror films. Um, but I don't think I really necessarily saw myself in science fiction. And I remember, I think I auditioned for Babylon 5. Mm. I think I did. Because uh, I had another sci-fi audition couple of years before Star Trek, and I thought, oh, this really isn't for me. Now, the way I happened to get into Voyager, um, it, was, uh, it was early one summer, I guess 1994, I was finally working at a very prestigious Los Angeles theater called the Mark Caper Forum that I'd always wanted to work at. I finally got a role there. And I was in the final days of rehearsal. In fact, I think we were in what we call tech week, where the days are long and you're setting all the technical cues and you work a 12-hour day. My agent sent me the Star Trek Voyager script to audition for. I said, I can't audition for this. I'm, you know, I, I, I have 12-hour rehearsal days. And, he's, and besides, I'm working. You know, you're not supposed to tell people you're available when you're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, don't you have a long lunch break? I said, yeah, I have two hours. He said, well, just go to the audition. Don't tell them you're working. <laughs> your agent, your agent, a good, Holly, a good Hollywood agent will say, yes, lie. Don't forget to lie. Um, so I went to the, I went to the audition, but I didn't even accept the, they wanted to see me for the doctor role. And I, uh, the night before I was supposed to go in, I said to an actress friend of mine who I'd known from China Beach, who was reading for Janeway, uh, a woman named Megan Gallagher. She said, oh, I've done a couple of guest stars on Deep Space Nine. I love the new Star Trek. They're great. She was referring to, you know, because I, I didn't really know much about the reboot. I hadn't seen The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. And I said, well, I did Doctor character. You know, he's, he's a machine. He's like a hologram, I guess. And I don't know how a hologram handles instruments. And it just sounds kind of boring to me. He's colorless and humorless like a machine. And she said, well, why don't, I read the script. Why don't you look at Neelix? Because that's a very funny part. So I looked at it. I loved the part of Neelix. I asked to read for Neelix. I went in and I came so close, so close to being cast. It, it was between me and Ethan Phillips, who's an old friend of mine, by the way, but I didn't know he was my competition, and a third actor, a British actor, um, who had been in Topsy Turvy about Gilbert and Sullivan. We all tested around the same time. And I came a hairbreadth from getting that role and therefore condemning myself to five and a half thousand hours in a makeup chair. Cause they don't <laughs> tell you how long the makeup is. They yeah. kind of, they don't want to scare the actors away. They, they say more than 15 minutes. Well, you know, three and a half hours a day is more than 15 <laughs> minutes. It's also more than, it's also more than three hours. Yeah. Um, but they don't tell you that. So I, 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 uh, I didn't get the Neelix spot. Thank God. Thank God. And then the, the producers really impressed me by calling my agent and saying, you know, there's something about him and his voice. We would love to see him read for the initial part. And by that time, I'd read the script. And I, you know, and I was, as I said, impressed that they didn't just discard me the way they do any actor. Once you've had a, a network test, you're over. If you don't get it, they don't look back. But the fact that they said, 
And I said to my agent, I don't get the joke of this character. I don't get it, but I'll go in and try. Now, uh, it's ironic because I, I didn't really get the joke. I knew he was supposed to be a willful piece of technology. I knew they wanted him to be funny, but I didn't really find it funny. Now, something that really helps me, I think, in the role is that I have what my two daughters would call resting bitch face. <laughs> when, my face is at, when my face is at rest, I look unhappy or even slightly mean. Just if I'm not smiling, I can look a little, you know, a, a little off-putting. It's, it's having big, dark eyes. And just the way, you know, just the way my expression is naturally, I look unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped, that helped me, you know. Um, but I also went in and did it without being aware of ripping off the Forrest Kelly. I did a, you know, I did an ad-lib joke at the end, which entirely got me the role. Entirely. Do you remember the and joke? Was, oh, yeah, absolutely. After the last scripted line in the pilot, the, the, actor, the character only has about nine lines mm-hmm. in the pilot. And the last scripted line in one scene, they've left his program running in sickbay, and he has nothing to do at the moment. So he, he's in an empty, empty sickbay, and he says, I believe someone has failed to terminate my program. That's supposed to be the outline of the scene. This goes a cut on that. But it, after I said the last line, I believe someone has failed to terminate my program, I took a long deadpan look at all 14 people watching the audition, and I said, I'm a doctor, not a nightlight, <laughs> and got a huge laugh. And then I was hired that afternoon. Oh, so, that's great. you know, it's a, it's a little risky. You don't really, you never have live in Star Trek, ever. I didn't know that, but yeah, Star Trek is very, you know, you really don't. If you, I, I learned to work the system by, you know, if you want to be, if you want to be spontaneous in Star Trek when you're shooting, you have to be spontaneous five days in advance, which means you have to read the scene when the script comes out. If you have a joke suggestion, you submit it, just like, you know, up the chain of command. You call the writer in question or email them. Back then, we didn't even, yeah, what am I talking about email? I don't think I used email then. So I basically just would call and say, hey, what if after this line I said this? And they, they wrote it down, and then if they liked it, it, it showed up in the rewrite pages. But you, the important thing is you did not waste time by stopping production because nobody had the freedom to change the script. No one did. Not the directors, not the actors. It was all a, it was all mm. a decision of the, right, of the, producing, the writer-producers. So if you wanted to change one thing, you had to stop the show, call them. And sometimes we did that because something was wrong. You know, once in a while, uh, you know, because of even my background as a biology major, if they if they made a mistake in something that was science based, and I knew it was a mistake, I would call. And because our tech advisor was an astrophysicist, not not a life science guy, so you know, he was very good at checking up on things. But some some things got by him, so I would catch them occasionally in an error in biology. You know, calling blood referring to blood cells rather than blood as a tissue because you know technically blood is a tissue so the nanoprobes uh, you know the first tissue to be attacked by the nanoprobes is the patient's blood not the first cells to be attacked is the patient's blood so little things like that i would call and they'd say well that sounds weird and then they would then the whole production would stop for 12 minutes and then they'd call <laughs> back and say okay you're right you know and, and but nobody likes 
a crew of 74 people or whatever it is sitting around for 10 full minutes. If you lose 10 minutes of production time, you're wasting thousands of dollars to, to satisfy an actor's ego. So yeah. I, I learned that the, that really the show was run very efficiently and the way to make a suggestion or change a line was to just do it in advance. And once you learned that, then you could, then you could make suggestions and, and come up with funny lines and stuff like that. What was it different in Stargate? What was that procedure? What was the was the set looser, or was it just as tight yeah, on Atlantis? No, you know, it was it was it was night and day different. Really? Um, yeah. First of all, Atlantis. You know, uh, Atlantis. I mean, the star the Stargate shows are science fiction shows that are set in the present. First of all, Star Trek being set in this set in this mythic you know future. 300 years or whatever in the future they they're very careful not to have any of the actors use a colloquial phrase or or in any way damage the feeling that we're that we're in the future they don't they don't like colloquialisms they don't like a regional speech regional american speech anyway it's okay to be british (laughs) they don't want you to be they don't want you to be from you know from south carolina or something like that they're just touchy about certain things, thinking that in the future, maybe everybody speaks standard American, for example, or certainly nobody would use a phrase like, you know, far out in the (laughs) 24th century. Yeah. So, um, so there's a certain, I understand to a certain extent why they're so protective of their language choices. Now, Stargate being set in a secret program in the present they were they use colloquial you know everyday language all the time and colloquial references but it's also just it's kind of baked in to the to the humorous tone mm-hmm. of the show that i really think came from richard dean anderson i mean i'm sure it came from brad wright and robert cooper and all that but but really richard dean anderson had that wonderful quality of sort of winking at the camera going you know we're going to save the world in 43 minutes and we know we're going to do it so it it there was always kind of a feeling of you know of 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 him letting the audience in on the joke so to speak that star trek didn't do they flirted with that in some humorous episodes but they basically didn't do that and and because of that um, it, it had a more loosey goosey seat of the pants. You were you were allowed in dangerous situations. You could still crack jokes. That and producers were great to me. I mean, they they gave you the freedom once you had the scene the way they wrote it. If you went up to the director and said, "Hey, can we do it again? I'd like to you know I'd like to try a different line, or I'd like to ask, you know," and they would like, "Yeah." Or I often just did an ad lib right at the end of the scene without even asking. Once I knew they had the cut point, they had the scene as it was, I'd say something at the end if I thought it was funny and appropriate. So Stargate was very, you know, it was a much looser show uh, to shoot. Um, And as much as I loved my years on Star Trek, there was always the feeling in the back of your mind that, oh, you know, we got to, we got to mind the clock. We got to get it done. We got to, you know, we got to do exactly as written. We don't want to mess around with the upstairs that we might get, a, you know, we might have a talking to. Whereas I never, you never had that anxiety on Stargate. It was always like, you know, and that may just be the way they treated me. They were very gracious to me because they knew, 
you know, I was the elder statesman coming in. I was the oldest actor in the cast and, and, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they just made me feel like, um, you know, that they were very glad to have me mm-hmm. and that they liked my instincts as an actor. So, so the, uh, I, I literally had the writers say on the set, Hey, thanks for that ad lib, or I really love that line because ultimately the writers get credit for the success of the show. You know what I mean? The writers, the, 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 the audience assumes that the writers wrote every line in the show. So if you add a great joke and the writers really like it and they're happy with it, you know, it's, it's ultimately to their credit. And that's the, that's the collaborative and fun thing. You know, it's like what reminds me of why I love working with Joe Dante, because, you know, he's such, he's such a classic example of a director who's so relaxed and, and confident in his own taste and his own strengths as a director that he never reacts badly. If an actor makes a suggestion, it's, Oh, he listens to everybody and then he'll do it or not do it. But the point is there's never any feeling of ego there. Like you're overstepping your, your, you know, your job description because he's just so he runs such a relaxed set and, you know, and and I and I had that feeling when I was doing Stargate that it was, you know, that if you had it, uh, you know, you, you were free, you were free to su- suggest anything. And sometimes on Star Trek, simply because of the long hours and the brutal schedule, you felt like, oh, I better not. <laughs> yeah. Now's not a good time to speak up because we're two and a half hours behind. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and you talk about change on Stargate and them being open to it. Woolsey, and you alluded to this earlier, but you can feel it not necessarily in your performance, but in your in your in the writing of it. He was not meant to be become the patriotic character that he became. He he has this going from this suit to this suit that defends the patriotism of the program to being the guy that runs the whole thing in Atlantis in the last year of the show. What was the conversation about his journey and the decision to take him from, like you say, a one-off villain to somebody who really becomes the caretaker for the whole mission of the program? You know, I, although I think that the whole production team, starting with uh, um, Brad Wright, Robert Cooper, I think they all um, grew to like me as an actor, uh, uh, quite a bit, but my real champions were Joe Malazzi and Paul Muley. They mm. wrote they wrote the script that introduced the Woolsey character, and Woolsey was brought in simply as filler material. They had written this amazing episode called Heroes with Saul Rubinek mm-hmm. playing a, a documentary film director, and while he's sort of recording the kind of dog and pony show at the, at the uh, Air Force, um, location you know they're hiding the stargate program from him but then this terrible tragedy happens off world and their doctor dies and it's it's so he senses that something terrible's happened but he doesn't he's kind of not allowed to know what it is and anyway they they made this great show that was 10 minutes too long so apparently they went to the sci-fi channel and said hey why don't we instead of taking 10 minutes out of this great episode why don't we make it a two-parter and we'll make the second part like a clip, our clip show where we take the best scenes and then we weave them into a new narrative. Cause that was one thing that they did. I think regularly 
yeah. to have one episode that was less money. They would do a, what's called a clip show where they would rerun the, the best, most expensive effect scenes and all that yeah. from the prior season. Okay. So I was brought in as a character to investigate how this tragedy had happened. And I was supposed to be just a complete kind of hatchet man. Uh, you know, who, who, somebody's head's going to roll for this. Who is it going to be? And I trust no one. And I believe, you know, I believe no one. I, I interview everybody. So I had 12 pages to shoot in one day because I had a commitment right after that. So they literally had me for one day. So I went up. It was a very brutal day, but I was extremely well prepared. I got all of this dialogue out and I knew nothing about their show really specifically before this. So I had to bone up on it. And, uh, and I did, uh, I, some of the scenes were complicated. I remember there was an interview scene where everybody was in my interview chair and it was one shot. So it went around and around in a circle without cuts and the different actors had to sneak in and out of the chair while they were off camera which was hard enough for them to do, but very hard for me because I, I never take my eyes off of a chair, but all of these people are jumping in and out of this chair as the camera circles us. It was super complicated. So it all went well. And the producers, Joe and Paul asked me to go out to dinner. We had a great time at dinner, joked a lot. They told me they'd been a fan of my work from Star Trek. And I guess we just hit it off so well that that, I think they even joked at that dinner saying, you know, I'm, we're sorry we made your character such a jerk because, you know, we would have loved to have had you back. I think they said something like that. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when they did call me back, every time they had that character back, he had a glimmer, a glimmer of a positive characteristic, having been introduced as a complete douchebag, just a <laughs> jerk. Yeah. So, you know, so the first time I'm a complete douchebag, but then the second time, I'm a complete douchebag who really believes in civilian oversight of a secret government organization. So I'm a, I'm a douchebag <laughs> who really believes in something that's positive, right? Yeah. I just go about getting it in a douchey way. And then the next time I'm back, I'm a douchebag who really believes in secret government oversight who doesn't really want to be a douchebag anymore. Yeah. And then the next time I was like, I, I not only didn't want to be a douchebag anymore – I felt bad that I was compelled to be a douchebag or that nobody liked me. I mean, I had this little glimmer of self-awareness that was totally, totally not apparent in the original character that he had any care at all, whether people liked him at all was, was not apparent, but he slowly developed these positive characteristics. And then he started to even have funny, you know, they would, I even had, they had fun with the fact that I was kind of a coward, that I was such a, you know, kind of an armchair quarterback that if you put me in danger, I was freaked out. Like when I was in the swarm, the crossover episode. Yeah. Uh, the first time I was on the Atlantis set, or actually it was an off world mission, but the first time I was on the Atlantis show that they spun me over, Woolsey is running away from danger faster <laughs> than anybody else. So, yeah. so when they finally called me, Joe called me right around Thanksgiving time um, in I don't know, maybe 2007 or something like that, and said, how would you like to be the new commander of the Atlantis expedition? I said, wait a minute, Joe. I said, I, nobody likes me. I'm a douchebag. <laughs> I have no leadership skills. All I do is critique other people's leadership. I'm a demonstrable coward, right? 
and no one has any respect for me. Yeah. And he said, don't worry about that. That's our problem. I said, great, let's do it. So, <laughs> I love that. Oh, but I, I did have Bill, to, you know, I had all those reactions at first and he said, that's our problem. And that's what was so great, great about that writing staff because they very deftly, they very deftly, um, without making him suddenly into a different person, they had all these things to, to make him earn the audience's sympathy. So the, so the audience was rooting for him. Yeah. Like, you know, ha- when, when he was, Taylor handed him her baby and he didn't know what to do with the baby. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and saying that in the divorce, his wife got the dog and all these little touches that, that made him where you realized he was kind of a lonely guy and really a, not only a lonely man, but a really a loner, right? Mm-hmm. And now suddenly he was part of a community, and not only part of it, he was leading. So I think that the way they, the way Wilsey kind of earned his, uh, you know, earned his stripes um, that that one season that I was a regular was very was very smart writing, and uh, and I credit them with the fact that the audience even not only kind of rooted for me, but they, they still bought me. Yeah. <laughs> they still bought me as the, as the same character, which is kind of extraordinary. If you think back to, you know, how he was introduced uh, several years before. Sure. I, you know, we're going to go over time, but I have three more things for you real sure. quick here. All right. Um, I want to talk about the planetary society. How did you become involved in oh. them and uh, with them? And is that a product of your involvement in science fiction? Yes, uh, it is. Yes, to your, uh, to your um, second question. I'll do it very quickly. The Planetary Society, which was, uh, we're celebrating our 40th year, yeah. was co-founded by Carl Sagan and uh, co- colleagues from Caltech, Lewis Friedman, and, uh, and Bruce Murray in 1980, because Sagan felt that the public's interest and engagement with space was waning after the incredible, you know, moonshot of the 60s. Yeah. And he wanted to, you know, captivate the public and, and give them a, a way of feeling that they had a voice in space exploration, that it mattered what they what their priorities were. They could kind of influence, you know, their uh, their congresspeople and say, hey, this program is important to me and I think we should do it. And, you know, they could exercise some influence. So um, and when I was on while I was in Star Trek in the, uh, you know, in our initial run maybe the something like the third season of Voyage or something around there, like 97 or 8, uh, I was asked to do a fundraiser, to take part in a fundraiser. It was Ray Bradbury's uh, 70th birthday, um, I believe 70th, 65th, 70th. And, uh, and I would get to meet Ray Bradbury, who was an icon. And they had actors like Charlton Heston, John Reese davies uh, John Delancey, who I barely knew at the time, who had already played Q and hadn't appeared very much on our show, or if at all, uh, and Tim Russ, my colleague, and uh, uh, several of us all read incredible passages from the Martian Chronicles and other works of Bradbury at the Pasadena Playhouse, and it was a fundraiser. And after that experience, I got a call at home from the two surviving, you know, Mr. Sagan, of course, had passed away before I was ever on, on Voyager, sadly. Um, but the, the two surviving co-founders called me and said, we'd like you to be on the advisory council. And I said, well, I'm really not a scientist. 
And they said, yeah, but we, you know, they, they found that, uh, I don't know how exactly they put it. I guess I had told them that I had been a biology major so that I was a science lover and I had, you know, and I, I cared about it. And, and I just found their, what I knew of their organization, I found really interesting. So I said, yes, they really wanted me to bring their message to the science fiction community, which is what my mission within their mission has been. But on a parallel track, here's what's happening at the same time. Star Trek is putting me in the company of extraordinary people who have been influenced by Star Trek over the years and gone on to do amazing things in science and technology. As an example, at the, at the Star Trek, um, at the, 30th anniversary of Star Trek, which was while Voyager was in its initial run. It was 1998, of course. And September of 98, we had a big event in um, space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. And I was one of, I don't remember how many of the, my Voyager castmates were there along with other, you know, but uh, uh, my recollection is Leonard Nimoy was there. And, and, and it was the first time I met DeForest Kelly and was on stage with him. And then on another occasion at that same event, I was on stage with five astronauts who had walked on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Al- Alan Shepard, Alan Bean, uh, Buzz Aldrin. Oh, my uh, gosh. Uh, 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 Dick. Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. Uh, uh, I, I can't believe I, I, I could normally can rattle off all five names. I apologize. That's okay. Um, um uh, in any case, this event uh, made me feel two different things. At, at first, I thought, oh, how awkward. I'm only an actor, and I'm here with these five icons of space exploration. And I thought, you know, you can either feel awkward about this and out of place, or you could embrace it and go, what an amazing opportunity to meet these people and talk to them and capture capture some of their, what's the word, just just some of their excitement and enthusiasm about about space, a subject that I hadn't thought a great deal about before I was on Star Trek. And that's what happened. I just, uh, to, to be around people who looked at science fiction, now, I, I'm sure the, these, the, that generation of astronauts, I, I, I don't believe, well, obviously they couldn't have been influenced by Star Trek. That's very unlikely, that generation of them. However, they could have been introduced by Isaac. Uh, they could have been influenced by Isaac Asimov or other classic science fiction. But in the intervening years, I have met so many people um, who work for NASA, uh, particularly at JPL, because I lived near it for so long. That that uh, that that were inspired. Uh, grew up watching Star Trek and went, oh, you know, this is this is exciting to me. I want to I want to try to bring us closer to that vision. I am, I want to extend our presence in space and make new discoveries. And, and that's, what's been so cool about being part of the franchise. I have met people who, who lump me in with the inspirational value of Star Trek that they experienced as young people and grew up um, and then grew up to become either astronauts or engineers or, you know, uh, principal investigators in, in big missions at NASA, et cetera. So that, that is why 
science working in Star Trek has brought me back to science. And my original passion, which is life science, now it now that we're getting closer and closer to discovering at least evidence of microbial life, if not on Mars, then hopefully on a on a, a moon of of, uh, of Jupiter or Saturn. I think it's going to happen, and I'm hoping it's going to happen during my lifetime. And if it if it does, and when it does, as our CEO Bill Nye is fond of saying, it will change. It will profoundly change the way each and every one of us look at ourselves, discovering just even microbial life offline. We're we're suddenly not going to be the center of the cosmos that yeah. that mankind has always kind of thought of itself as. Not, and and yeah. that's going that's that's going to be an exciting moment. I so, would, um, so, I'm sorry, please. Oh, but anyway, the planetary study. I'm now on the executive board. I did many videos for them called uh, the Planetary Post, where I would talk to uh, uh, different people working in various aspects of space exploration. It's really helped me to become a science presenter, which is basically someone who. Can can for the sake of a of a layperson audience, I can ask the same questions they would, and interview someone who knows far more about the topic than I ever could. But I can still, I can still ask the questions that a general audience member would want to hear the answers to, and that's been a wonderful experience. And I've met so many really extraordinary people. So I'm a big fan of it, and I encourage your audience to visit our our newly uh, refurbished website. And you can see all of our videos, see the videos I've done there, read our bloggers. We, we have the best bloggers about space. They're constantly quoted in major newspapers like the Washington Post. So we have the most knowledgeable people writing about space who work for our nonprofit, the Planetary Society. So I highly recommend. And our leader, Bill Nye, is just a, a, you know, a great voice for engaging the public and, and getting them interested in science in general and certainly exploration. I love that. Speaking of Star Trek, real quick, and of course, everybody, you should go check out the Planetary Planetary Society. It's just wonderful. I was on the website all day, and so I had to ask about that. Getting back to Star Trek, real quick, just to break some news. I know in 2019 you mentioned you were asked, but are you, along with Whoopi Goldberg, maybe going to be involved in Season 2 of Picard? Um, there, are no, uh, there are no present plans um so i uh the answer is no um but but you know you ne never say never in star trek uh yeah i i i i loved uh my experience working on it and like bren spiner i i played uh two different characters i played you know my main character as his was data and I also played the engineer who created my character, who, of course, would have aged in real time. So I would say anything is possible, but uh, nothing is definite. I love that. Last question for you, and then stay on because I want to talk to you real quick. We'll wrap up after we're off mic here. But my last question for you is you have had such an amazing career. You've done literally everything. This kind of brings back to what I opened with. Uh, not that your career is over by any means, but a body of work is still a body of work. And when you look back at it, what do you think about how many things you've gotten to do as an actor and as a personality because of all of this? What do you make of this incredible success across so many genres for yourself? Well, first of all, thank you. That's you. Uh, I don't 
<laughs> from the inside, I don't look at it that way. I feel right. I feel blessed that I've gotten to spend my life doing exactly what I love doing. That's 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 what I feel mostly. I feel gratitude for entering a difficult profession and to have made my life, uh, my career, and my living exclusively from that. Basically, since I was in my early 20s. I mean, I was on Broadway by 22, wow. 23, forgive me, uh, in my first major role. So I've been very fortunate and, and I'm very aware of that. And I, uh, it, what was wonderful to bring it back to Star Trek, it is, it's great for an actor to have a quote signature role, so to speak, so that, so that, uh, you know, even if people, if you're, if you're, if you're in some corner of the world where people have never seen Star Trek, at least they've heard of it. So when you say you're not, you, you don't have to answer that awful question. Would I have seen you in anything? Which is what we all suffer <laughs> as young actors, you know, when you run into people. Um, but uh, I have, I've had an enormous uh, breadth of things that I've been able to do. Star Trek brought me back to singing. As obviously at Yale at the beginning of our conversation, when I said that I did the math, I thought I'd be singing throughout my career because that was my first big success was in, was in a very complicated musical work like that. But then for many years, I didn't, I didn't sing at all, but Star Trek got me singing again. And I've done about eight musicals since Star Trek ended as recently as last spring in New York off Broadway. I did enter laughing the musical by the great, based on the book by the great Carl Reiner, who we just recently lost. So if yes. you talk about a, a career like his, we all pale against a man like that, who had a, you know, who had that incredibly wonderful a career and lived vibrantly into his middle 90s, still creating new work. Like Norman Lear, like Mel Brooks, like all of these, you know, these amazing people that are in their 90s and still doing it. Norman Lear just turned... 98 and i'm happy to say is a is an acquaintance of mine of many years because i have very close friends with his son-in-law so oh, wow. it's uh it's really a you know i i feel now is sort of getting to elder statesman status i i really appreciate how lucky i am to have had um you know to have had longevity uh in an industry that i love and uh and and that's that's really a wonderful thing Thank you, Robert. I cannot wait to see what your next project will be once we are out of this crazy quarantine time where film industry is going, then it shuts down, then it's going, then it shuts down. I can't wait to see what you do next. And of course, everybody, for those interested on the actual astronomy side of things, visit planetary.org. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talk for Two and Instagram at Talk for Two Pod. Reach out to me directly at Talk for Two Cast at gmail.com. That's T A L K F O R T W O C A S T at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.